0: You are listening to the New Discourses podcast. I am James Lindsay, and today we're going to talk about the cancellation of Dr. Seuss. Um, I guess he technically hasn't been canceled, but for all intents and purposes, he has. We'll talk about that, talk about how it goes. The story is that six Dr. Seuss books will no longer be published over so-called, quote, hurtful and wrong imagery. Um, We have in the news today that Biden removes the mention of Dr. Seuss from Read Across America Day. Uh, this is a direct result of activism that targeted this. And um, I actually want to make it very clear that this is a much bigger circumstance. I want to actually dive into the literature and show you what's going on. Um, but this is a bigger, this is a part, a small part of a bigger project, both against uh Seuss himself and what's going on more broadly with the woke movement. This isn't a one-off or some kind of a, you know, just little backwater of the culture war. In some sense, it's small, but it really is indicative. And it's not totally clear that the actual authors of the relevant paper behind this cancellation, uh, partial cancellation of Seuss, which is actually a total tainting of Seuss, as we'll discuss, um, it's not clear that they understand what they're participating in, but what they're participating in is a very broad project that the entire woke movement drives. Their moral impetus is to drive this project, and that project is or phrase in the original German, Aufheben der Kultur, uh, which means the negation or abolishment of culture. It is what uh, might have been called cultural Marxism or cultural Bolshevism before that. The idea being that we're now going to use Marxian conflict theory and the Bolshevists methods against cultural artifacts to tear down cultural hegemony and replace it. So those of you who listen to my podcast on Antonio Gramsci uh, and cultural Marxism will know that that. Gramsci was particularly instrumental in changing the target of Marxist analysis off of economics and into culture. Uh, Lenin used the same kind of strategy, Mao certainly used a strategy. And so a couple of things before we can dive into the actual study, since <laughs> scare quotes a study about uh, Dr. Seuss upon which this was ultimately based, uh, a couple of points as a narrower point. Um, you know, what's going on here ultimately for the woke is the woke anti-racist, if you will, activists believe that there's coded racism everywhere. And we're going to see this in the academic paper that this is their fundamental assumption and that that coded secret racism that permeates society and permeates the systems and, and cultural artifacts of society socializes people into a system of racism beyond their control. So they become racist by virtue of being in a racist system. And so it's the only way to fix that. It doesn't matter what the context is. It doesn't matter that maybe Dr. Seuss, for example, was writing a hundred years ago in an actual or in almost 180, I guess, years ago in an almost, uh, and actually, you know, Racial environment that he was a man of his times. They they counter that. In fact, in the, the paper that I'm going to go through with you, um, context doesn't matter what they're worried about is that kids today might be reading Dr. Seuss and picking up all of this subtle coded racism, some of which is um, Maybe there's an argument for it. Some of it is pretty tendentious. They really have to stretch to make the argument. And then they're just going to imbibe that. They actually do argue that young children can't tell the difference and just learn racial attitudes. This is a common argument or even trope within critical race theory that probably doesn't have a lot of good evidence behind it. It's them riffing off of some science that doesn't seem to reflect what they claim, but that's the standard issue for them. They're also afraid that people would be children would would start to read the, you know, good Dr. Seuss books, if you will, and that will then lead them into uh, reading the bad Dr. Seuss stuff where he did actually make it genuinely made some plainly uh, racist uh, cartoons and such, uh, but not in his children's books. Um, and it's, I, it's weird for me even to say these words, but there are Dr. Seuss scholars and Dr. Seuss scholars tend to be pretty generous to seuss saying he was a man of his times and that he separated his children's book from his his earlier cartoons um which were very political and sometimes were outright racist and that there's no reason to believe that anywhere in his children's book you're going to find that but the worry would be that oh dr seuss is not going to be held up as an icon and then children will go find the racism and say oh my icon said all this racist stuff and of course just being the uh brainwashed into a system of white supremacy people that they are having their false consciousness they will then obviously think oh well dr seuss endorsed it so it must be okay rather than doing what everybody who encounters that when they first find out actually does in real life which is to say whoa that's crazy i can't believe that, that was real. but okay it was the 30s or whatever you know the, so they have this very dim view of human intelligence and agency and ethical reasoning And they're just afraid that that's gonna get everywhere. That's what they're really doing. And so their their idea is really that the only way you can stop that is by canceling things to get rid of the so-called system of racism that they believe permeates everything, that is the ordinary operating system of society, and replace it with something that they, of course, run, making it into a power grab, um, which holds a lot in common with totalitarian regimes like Leninism and Maoism, besides the obvious parallels. Um, There's a broader context here, too, that has to be understood. The bigger goal is actually to put stain on Dr. Seuss, but not just because he's Dr. Seuss, not just because he's successful or his legacy is successful 650 plus million copies of his books sold. the, the, the goal with, like I mentioned Antonio Gramsci a minute ago, with like over a hundred years going back into the literature, we could talk about Georg Lukacs, Max Horkheimer, uh, for example, as well, and Herbert Marcuse, these Frankfurt school guys in parallel to uh, Gramsci. The hundred year background in the literature, the goal is to actually be able to detach the West from its cultural anchors. In the original German I just mentioned, it's Habender Kultur, which means abolish the culture. Um. Mao referred to it as destroying the four olds: the suju, old ideas, old habits, old uh, customs, and old ways of thinking. Um, That was central to the activity of his Red Guards during the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution. you see it in Pol Pot's ambition to achieve a year zero, which reflected the same kind of ambition when they were going to reset French society in the French Revolution. This kind of thing just keeps coming up again and again and again within these particular veins of thought. Um, So it seems like a small and stupid thing to go after some of Dr. Seuss's books for being hurtful in their content. That's the wedge that they use here, the the crowbar to pull up our culture. Something's hurtful. It's harmful. We shouldn't indoctrinate children. We shouldn't expose children to it because obviously they wouldn't be able to possibly think through themselves in their own context and make... Informed decisions that, in the past, things were more racist, and in the present, they are less, and therefore progress has happened, and it's good. um no, that wouldn't be be possible. It's instead to taint Dr. Seuss because if you can taint six of his books, everything he did becomes question. It's like Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby gets blasted with um rape allegations. This all proceeds as it does, and now everybody's afraid to talk about The Cosby Show, which was a massive cultural anchor, and in fact a very progressive cultural anchor, but Bill Cosby was also a vicious critic of um, certain aspects of what might be termed black culture and was a big fan of responsibility, and of course he portrayed a family that the critical race theorists would say was acting white in um, in. The, the Cosby show. So you can't even talk about that cultural anchor anymore because Cosby's been tainted. Well, this is the, a similar attempt is going to be to taint Dr. Seuss as a racist. Why? Because in the cultural anchor that's contained in Dr. Seuss's body of literature, which the vast majority of American children are exposed to and grow up with, which gives us a shared sense of uh understanding and identity we can all kind of haha redfish bluefish you know whatever um together you know we say it becomes like a cultural meme a thing that binds people together they have a shared background a shared sense of culture it, it, that has to be destroyed because that is the culture that they believe has to be undermined and replaced with their critical race anti-racist uh generally identity-based marxist whatever it is Activist culture that they wish to bring into the world because, not particularly because it's going to work, but because it empowers them um, to do it. So, this is what the bigger picture of what's going on. Uh, The goal is to stain Dr. Seuss so that you can undermine his cultural relevance and so that people have less and less shared cultural relevance to relate to, and then that canon can be replaced uh, through kind of a, you know, decolonize the literature mentality. So this is the big picture now the news event you know i mentioned already uh six dr seuss books will no longer be published over hurtful and wrong imagery i've said that the point of this uh, going after dr seuss like this is alf habender culture which is the abolishment of culture uh, which is an explicit neo-Marxist idea, an explicit critical theory idea, was Habender culture, which means abolishment of culture. Uh, the goal is to undermine Western civilization by undermining its cultural uh, anchors, its cultural underpinnings, and replace it with a critical consciousness. Um, the goal, like I said, is to taint Dr. Seuss's legacy, so that uh, uh, so that the widely shared cultural reference point will be lost and can be replaced, probably by force, with some kind of garbage propaganda, maybe like anti-racist baby. And so, this is the context. But there is actually a paper behind this. There's actually an academic paper. I st- stretch the word academic here um, from. Uh, Research on Diversity in Youth Literature is the name of the the journal, Uh, Volume 1, Issue 2. How about that? It's a brand new journal that started publishing papers in. Uh, Apparently, I would go, if it's Issue 2, February 2019, either very early 2019 or uh, late 2018, it's going to be a critical journal. And the paper is called The Cat is Out of the Bag, Orientalism, Anti-Blackness, and White Supremacy in Dr. Seuss's Children's Books. It's by Katie uh, Ishizuka and Ramon Stevens, Um, and they are activists. They say so very explicitly in the paper, as we will comment upon. Uh, But I'm just going to dive into the paper. This is actually going to be difficult. I want to not run too far over an hour, but there's so much here and so much that has to be drawn up. I don't want to read the whole paper to you, obviously. but it's something. It's it's really something. It is fifty something pages long, uh, but it's really something. So let's kind of just dive in. I'll read the uh, first couple of paragraphs of the introduction to give you some framing of where these people are coming from. Theodore Seuss Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss, has sold over six hundred fifty million children's books in seventeen languages in ninety-five countries. So you can see that the reach of Dr. Seuss is something that that's why they've got to target him. He's got too much reach. He gives too much shared. Uh, kind of cultural identity, stuff you learn as kids and you connect to. And uh, yeah, you know that too? Yeah, I know that too. Oh yeah, Dr. Seuss. I love Dr. Seuss. Oh, you know, it could talk about, we actually have referred to the academic literature, the so-called grievance studies literature that we mimicked like this paper. um, As at one point we tried to describe it as being like the houses drawn in Dr. Seuss books, impossible houses just built on impossibly thin towers that stretch out in weird angles and are held up by sticks and things like that. Um, so that cultural reference of what a Dr. Seuss house looks like, that they're building these impossible imaginary houses that are ridiculous, um, kind of the kind of thing that only exists in a silly cartoon, um, that only works in the world of a silly cartoon, that that cultural reference only makes sense if, if Dr. Seuss is, makes sense, is acceptable, and is widely shared. If we take away that reference, uh, there's a problem. turns out that some of Dr. Seuss's works uh, are held up And are even promoted by very activist groups like teaching tolerance as being explicitly anti-racist and what they actually are accused of in this paper is promoting colorblindness in that regard and that's of course not okay to critical race theorists and are these people critical race theorists by the way yes they are they say so explicitly we'll get to that but carrying on of the 650 million books over 450 million have been sold in the 27 years since dr seuss died uh, this written in 2019, so I guess it's been 29 years since he's died now, he I mean, died in the 90s. Bill Dreyer, collections curator for the Art of Dr. Seuss touring exi- uh, exhibitions, told CBS News, quote, Dr. Seuss is more popular now than he was during his lifetime. Well, that's a problem if your goal is to help him in the culture, isn't it? Um, in spite of his first children's book being published over 80 years ago in 1937, Seuss continues to be widely celebrated in American culture, homes, and classrooms as quote, the most popular children's author in America. So this is what I'm talking about. We've got to break your ability to have these cultural, these binding cultural uh, icons so that they can be replaced with new ones that are ultimately activist propaganda and controlled by, and that empower the grift of and the empowerment of the activists. This This is, you have to understand the context of what's going on here. According to Herb Shayette of Dr. Seuss Enterprises, which is one of the groups or is the main group that canceled six of the books, quote, one out of every four children born in the United States receives as its first book, a Dr. Seuss book. So, again, common cultural background. That's what has to be destroyed that's what has to be destroyed. Too many children are going to learn too much. We're going to have it form a common cultural background. It's not clear the authors understand this with critical theorists. They often are just trained complainers, trained agitators that complain and uh, they don't necessarily understand. I actually think that the majority of the woke are useful idiots for a bigger project of tearing down the culture that they don't even understand. They just know that it's somehow important to complain about these things. And I don't suspect that the authors realize that they're actually tearing down the culture that enables them to have a job where they do this, uh, and that the system works enough to be able to feed them to do this, but maybe they do. Uh, Carrying on before and during his career publishing children's books, Dr. Seuss also published hundreds of racist political cartoons, comics, and advertisements for newspapers, magazines, companies, and the United States government. This is, I think, unambiguously true. In spite of Dr. Seuss's extensive body of explicitly racist published works dehumanizing and degrading black indigenous and people of color, BIPOC, and people from other marginalized groups, including Jewish people and Muslims, many differentiate and defend the author's children's books as, quote, promoting tolerance and even, quote, anti-racist. The book, The Sneetches, has been referred to as, quote, an anti-racism fable and, quote, a groundbreaking diatribe against bigotry. Southern Poverty Law Center's Teaching Tolerance, which is, by the way, one of the most psychotically activist education things in the universe, and that has now been rebranded as something even more psychotically activist, Uh, Teaching Tolerance uses the Sneeches in their anti-racist curriculum for children in kindergarten through fifth grade. Horton, here's a, a who, has been referred to as, quote, an allegory advocating equal treatment of all people, with the line, quote, a person's a person, no matter how small, frequently cited as a moral of tolerance. Our study, they write, sought to evaluate the claims that his children's book or books are anti-racist and was shaped by the research question, how and to what extent are non-white characters depicted in Dr. Seuss's children's books? And they call this thing a study, which is, I think, a little bit hilarious, but we'll, I'll give it to them. They actually kind of have a method. Um, we designed our study, they write, to promote Uh, important insights into the manner and extent to which white characters and characters of color are portrayed and assess their implications to the development and reinforcement of racial bias in young children. We also assess the messaging communicated through the racialized non-human characters in The Cat in the Hat, The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, The Sneetches, and Horton Hears a Who. These titles were selected because of the use of The Sneetches and Horton Hears a Who as anti-racist texts and Philip Nell's research on The Cat in the Hat's origins in blackface minstrelsy. Um, so yeah, they do actually, I don't know how much time we'll spend with the cat in the hat, but, uh, in this podcast, but they do make out that the the cat in the hat is basically a character in blackface, um, which I think is a bit of a stretch. Uh, he's a cat. (laughs) Um, okay. So, there's this long section where they lay out the background of some of the extremely racist cartoons that Dr. Seuss published, including ones against African-Americans, ones against Jews, ones against Muslims, and ones against, um, against Japanese people, in particular during World War II, uh, which I don't think is actually uh, deniable. Um, but they give a comprehensive uh, summary of many of these kinds of things. And I want to kind of skip over all of that. Native Americans also, I should have said, some of this was advertising stuff that was going on in like the forties and fifties and thirties even, and that he was making cartoons for advertisers and they depicted racist themes, especially about Native Americans. And this is where you find a lot of people uh, saying that, you know, this was, um, he was a man of his times and they evaluate him many, apparently again, I'm hesitate to use this phrase, but they, many Dr. Seuss scholars evaluate him according to the way that he evolved along with and in ways ahead of his time, and this paper accuses them of basically not, not taking Dr. Seuss to task for not being more ahead of his time than he was. Uh, certainly, though, he has some pretty intense Stuff brought up here. I don't know how that reflects against the entire body of his work. The style here, as I've written these fake papers myself, is in fact to cherry pick uh, the worst and then kind of leave out the best. That's everything else. That's explicitly what we were testing with our fake paper about Hooters. When we wrote the fake grievance studies papers, we cherry picked or allegedly cherry picked. Um just particular incidents out of thousands and thousands and thousands of other things that were banal and said that this is indicative of a massive systemic problem, even though it was clear cherry picking um and the major journal accepted that paper and was, was, the editor was horrified and said, that, you know this I've never been to a Hooter's restaurant, but it confirms all my stereotypes about them. and I'm like, yeah really, um same kind of thing could be happening here i don't i I don't know the full body of the stuff that Seuss published, but certainly some of this stuff is pretty intense um, and undeniable uh, by today's standards anyway, and that's even without wokeness uh, in the mix. And so the next section is actually, this is important because it sets the stage, uh, children's books and children's racial attitudes. So this is what I was saying a few moments ago, is that what they're trying to do is make out that children are too impressionable and they're going to be brought into racism uh, by reading books that have these kinds of depictions, um, children—they write—are able to recognize and express preference by race as early as three months of age. That's not really what that study shows. They cite this study, Kelly et al. Um, I have this here as well. It is by David Kelly and a slew of other researchers. Three-month-olds, but three-month-olds, but not newborns, prefer own-race faces. And this is a study where what they did was they took newborns. White newborns and then white three months olds, and they gave them an array of faces that were deemed to be of rough, roughly the same attractiveness level uh, of four different races Caucasian, Middle Eastern, uh, Black, and uh, Asian. And what they did was they basically paired up faces and stared, or they tracked how long babies at zero or you know, newborn babies, I should say, and then three month old babies stared at the different pictures, how much attention they gave them. And what they found is that that newborns have very little demonstrable racial preference in how they look at the different faces. Whereas three months old have, they call it, you know, very significant, but the numbers don't work out to that being that big, something like 58 and 42% or something like that versus 50, 50. Um, the, the study has a big limitation to be able to draw that conclusion that they prefer own race faces is what they say, but even the paper, you know, which is quite short, acknowledges uh, one limitation they write of the current study as well as that of uh, another similar study is that only Caucasian participants were tested. So we don't actually know what's going on with other groups. If there's something happening like... Um, as many of the camera feature type things have discovered that, you know, the contrast level, maybe babies' eyes are (laughs) drawn more to the new three month old babies are drawn more to the contrast level. Maybe it's just familiarity. Maybe they are more familiar with their own race. And it's not actually a preference as it is uh, kind of the comprehensibility of something familiar. Um, Nevertheless, the paper concludes this study has provided the first direct evidence in support of an ethnically unspecified face processing system at birth which can become tuned in to certain facial dimensions that specify race within the first three months of life we believe that preference for own race faces observed in three-month-olds represents the perceptual beginnings of categorization based on ethnic differences and may provide basis for the other race effect which is where they all look the same Um, they also point out that this goes down while it's present in adults it goes down typically with uh, over time and experience um, this is all about though, tracking the eye movements of babies, looking at pictures of people they don't know, um, and identifying that when it's their same race, which means Caucasian, they l- tend to look slightly more often at three months, uh, 58.8% to 41.2% were the actual numbers, um, than they do when they're newborns. And so this is, this is what's held up as evidence in the crazy Dr. Seuss paper that children are able to categorize and express preference by race. Well, no, your preference by race is now reading their minds in a critical way, but this is critical theory, so of course it is. Um, it's not necessarily preference by race. The authors of the paper themselves say that they don't really know what's going on, and they haven't done the experiment necessary to determine if it's preference by race, um, just that this this effect occurs is all that there is. But this is the kind of typical co-opting where they pretend that they have science on their side. Uh, And of course, it's all about, you know, building up implicit biases, which implicit biases have been mostly taken apart. But speaking of them, they go on to cite implicit bias research by saying, according to Barron and Banaji, children, quote, report negative explicit attitudes toward outgroup members at age three. When exposed to racism and prejudice at this age, they tend to embrace and then accept it, even though they might not understand the feelings, citing another paper. Uh, and by age six, white North American children have already developed a pro-white anti-black bias, according to Barron and Banaji. I've pulled that paper up as well. This is a paper about the development of implicit attitudes, evidence of race evaluations from ages six to ten in adulthoods by Andrew Scott Barron and Mazarin R. Banaji at Harvard University. These are the guys who came up with the implicit bias test, which is... Is itself dubious so now they're gonna like tack it on to children and use this to to make this claim that there's a explicit anti-black and pro-white bias in children as early as six and this is going to be the justification in the Dr. Seuss paper for why children shouldn't be exposed to Dr. Seuss books um, but just to read the abstract of the uh, Baron and Banaji paper which was um, what year is this um, 2006 so as we've all, or many of us have heard, much of the implicit bias research, despite what's going on at your workplace with trainings, has been walked back as being um, kind of like reading tea leaves and reading things into, into situations. Um, but anyway, to understand the origins, the abstracts origin and development of implicit attitudes. We measured race attitudes in white American six year olds, 10 year olds, and adults by first developing a child oriented version of the implicit association test, child IAT. Remarkably, implicit pro-white anti-black bias was evident even in the youngest group, which is six-year-olds, with self-reported attitudes revealing bias in the same direction. In ten-year-olds and adults, the same magnitude of implicit race bias was observed, although self-reported race attitudes became substantially less biased in older children and vanished entirely in adults who self-reported equally favorable attitudes toward whites and blacks. So what they're saying is by 10, at six years old, you have kids who have racial biases that match their IAT results that they created, uh, that, that they express. Um, by 10, that's severely diminished, and by adults, it's more or less gone. And so what what one could draw from that is that what we had been doing, this was in 2006, up to that point, uh, so children born in 1996 or earlier, is very successful at reducing race bias as children grow up and learn about the world. It's kind of a, not the kind of framing that they usually want on their research, right? Um, And vanished entirely in adults. So people born before 1996, according to this study, uh, you know, or I guess before 1986 to be adults by then, um, their racial bias vanished entirely. Their explicit racial bias vanished entirely by the time of this study, but their implicit bias, which is, you know, more or less BS, um, has been heavily taken apart at this point. Their implicit bias remains. Um, So they say these data are the first to show an asymmetry in the development of implicit and explicit race attitudes, with explicit attitudes becoming more egalitarian and implicit attitudes remaining stable and favoring the in-group across development, which may not have anything to do with race, as the stuff taking apart implicit bias uh, research would indicate. Um, The quote here in the paper is uh, right here on page 55. As figure one shows, the six-year-olds had already developed implicit pro-white anti-black associations observed in faster responding on white plus good, black plus bad trials, than black plus good, white plus bad trials. Mean difference, 79 milliseconds. So there's a 79 millisecond difference in processing these things, and that's supposed to be indicative of massive amounts of underlying racial bias that's implicit. Um, So this is what they're basing this on, and what they're afraid of then is that young people are being socialized into systems of racism, and as a result, uh, are becoming are being made racist by being exposed to these kinds of things. And therefore, Dr. Seuss's books become dangerous. So why, how is that really what they're saying? Well, the next sentence children's books provide impressions and messages that can last a lifetime and shape how children see and understand themselves, their homes, communities and the world, a long history of research. I don't know what that means anymore, shows that text accompanied with imagery such as books or pictures shapes children's racial attitudes. Shapes them how? I mean, we just saw the children that were growing up on Dr. Seuss books that were born in 1996 have very few (laughs) racial attitudes. And before that, very few racial attitudes. I was reading Dr. Seuss when I was a kid in the 80s. um, And as an adult, according to their study, have virtually no uh explicit racial biases so but somehow this is of course a big problem now that has to be fixed and that's somehow going to like forcing people to read anti-racist baby instead is probably going to be the solution to fix it um not suggested in this paper but just to kind of give you a picture of how the activism thinks so they say when children's books center whiteness or race people of color and other oppressed groups or present people of color in stereotypical dehumanizing or subordinate ways, they both ingrain and reinforce internalized racism and white supremacy. There's no reason to believe that this is actually true. There's actually no reason to believe that this is true, but they like to say it because they operate on a social construction thesis, social constructionist, I should say, thesis that the social environment that you're exposed to, you don't have the capacity to analyze it. You just imbibe it. That's really the way that they see it, that the social environment that you're exposed to, you just imbibe that and take it all at face value and just reproduce that unless you become a critical theorist. That's the only way out. And so they just say this, even though it's not true. They also say things like that that violent video games make violent people where the data bear out exactly the opposite, that exposure to pornography makes people uh, more likely to be rapists or or sexual assailants where, again the data bear out exactly the opposite. Um, Their social constructionist thesis is, in every scientific analysis, Effectively fully in the toilet, but they just keep saying this because they are ardent social constructionists, which is basically kind of a uh, materialist religion at this point. Um, and th- nobody can properly challenge them on it because they can just say, oh, well, that's just internalized this or that study is that or whatever um, and shut it all down. And so um, here's here's the kind of stuff that they use to justify this social constructionist thesis, which uh, is rather poor in its actual uh, descriptive ability. It's it's what, what Stephen Colbert would have said, it's truthy, it has truthiness to it, but it's not truth. Um, they write, Rudine Sims Bishop explains the impact of white-centered narratives on white children in her article, Mirrors, Windows, and Sliding Glass Doors. They love these metaphors. Children, this is a quote from dominant social groups, have always found their mirrors in books, but they too have suffered from the lack of availability of books about others. They need the books as windows into reality, not just on imaginary worlds. They need books that will help them understand the multicultural nature of the world they live in and their place as a member of just one group, as well as their connections to all other humans. In this country where racism is still one of the major unresolved social problems, books may be one of the few places where children who are socially isolated and insulated from the larger world may meet people unlike themselves. If they see only reflections of themselves, they will grow up with an exaggerated sense of their own importance and value in the world, a dangerous ethnocentrism. So now you need massively multiracial books because people aren't going to encounter that. Like it's not all over television. Um, Like it's not anywhere you go in any given city. Like most people don't have uh, friends, whether from work or from their hobbies or whatever it is, across lots of lines. Again, this was written in 2019. So the fact that they're, I mean, these people live in a world that that doesn't exist anymore, anymore. They live in these bubbles where they've kind of like tokenized groups or something. And it's just not reflective of what's happening in reality. It's not reflective of what's happening for sure and the people they're most worried about, which is like blue-collar workers and blue collar neighborhoods where there's tons of um, tons tons of ethnic mixing and everybody's just fine. Everybody's getting they're just completely disconnected because they live in these weird bubbles where, you know, this this is how they think about the world. So this is why we have to get rid of Dr. Seuss books for children. Uh So I'm going to kind of skim through the paper and find, uh, more of what they have to say about this, where it's relevant, because I want to get to the stuff where they actually point out Dr. Seuss, uh, the problems in Dr. Seuss's books. And again, unfortunately I don't have the technology to highlight this stuff. This is a very long paper. Um, so lots of pointing out They call it a literature review. Um, they bring up the examples that they're really going to, going to hit on, for example, of the book, If I Ran the Zoo, one of the most egregious, they say. I, I reread this. It's not egregious. In terms of depicting people of color through racist caricatures, Ruth K. MacDonald writes, quote, Occasional stereotypes of Native peoples, pop bellied thick-lipped blacks from Africa, squinty-eyed orientals, may offend some modern readers, but in general, the book delights the reader, or delights readers of several ages at several levels. Um, another person, Miniar, dis- disregards the racism in hundreds of cartoons Seuss published, when he praises, quote, just how good the good doctor really was, good at communicating his ideas clearly and just plain old-fashioned good. He called him as he saw him, and most of the time he was on the side of the angels. Um, Where Seuss used the n-word, which they spell in this paper n-star-g-g-e-r, the same menier defends the use. The term n-star-g-g-e-r was clearly pejorative but the origins of the expression are obscure. It may have meant something, simple, simply something unexpected. Uh, that might be a little bit of apologism. I don't know. I don't have the full context. I didn't open up that particular paper. Um, but nonetheless, we have uh, another scholar, Cohen. He said. Uh, who this paper accuses of erasing and disregarding the impact of Seuss's racist works. This is reading again, when he calls Seuss quote ahead of his fellow Americans in promoting tolerance through his children's books and a pioneer for the fight for equality. So again, this man-of-his-times thing is going to be... This is this is a huge site of argument, um, because their case is basically that Seuss, if he was a man-of-his-times, wasn't sufficiently progressive. Even if he was one of the mo- more progressive figures, he wasn't sufficiently progressive. And he wa- that's the wedge that they use to pry these people out of our cultural um, milieu, where we don't have them any longer as a point of reference. So they claim that their study seeks to address the gap in the literature around depictions of human characters of color across Seuss's children's book collection, as well as the gap in scholarship and critical analysis from the perspectives of non-white researchers. One of the researchers, I think, is Japanese uh, or Japanese-American, and the other is black. Um, So... Yeah, there's a huge gap in Dr. Seuss critical research. That's a huge gap. We're all dying because we can't read Dr. Seuss books for ourselves. And we can't possibly talk to our children about stuff that was that, that, that appears awkward or out of step with 2021 from when it was written maybe in 1937 or 1953 or something like this when Dr. Seuss was writing a lot of his children's books. Yeah, we can't possibly do that. Um, therefore, we have to have a whole critical literature to, to dive into this, to tell us how to think about Dr. Seuss and how it's actually problematic. And if you like it, you're probably wrong. Um, and of course it has to be done as critical analysis, as critical theory from the perspective of non-white researchers. So this is a key piece here. Um, next in the paper, I will read this entire paragraph, theoretical framework. I want to make it clear who we're dealing with that are, that's behind this theoretical framework. The theoretical frameworks used to guide this study consist of critical literacy and critical race theory. I told you they're critical race theorists. Absolutely no question. Here they are. I would say they're confessing to it, but they're proud of it. Critical literacy encourages students and readers to look deeper into a text and analyze its social and cultural implications. In other words, it means picking at a text to find out how it's a problem in the critical theory style where you have envisioned a perfected society and you are now going to criticize how everything in the existing society doesn't live up to that perfected standard and you're going to do social activism on behalf of that. Um, That's what we're going to analyze We're going to look deeper into a text until we find racism there, because, of course, racism must be present. The question is not, did racism take place? But how did racism manifest in this children's book? Text and imagery they write uh, communicate about power, race, and gender. Who should receive privileges and who has been or continues to be oppressed? I keep forgetting to mention, by the way, a lot of the characters in Dr. Seuss's books. It's not surprising that somebody writing in the 30s and 40s is going to depict white children with white families. It's just not surprising. It's not something to be bringing up and they're going to make a big point of it. But a lot of them use characters that aren't, not only are they not white, they're not humans, they're animals. And not only are they sometimes not animals, they're not even real things. There's no such thing as a sneetch. It's not a real thing. And so they're, somebody's projecting racial ideas onto these, these, characters. But just to point that out, before we dive into now the next sentence, critical race theory provides a lens that exposes how structural intersections, for example, race and gender, impact policy law and the experiences of privileged and underprivileged communities. Critical race theorists who might also consider themselves scholar activists, as in they're doing activism through scholarship instead of doing rigorous scholarship, value and include oppressed communities, experiential knowledge, which is often silenced in academia. Um, bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you can write freaking auto ethnographies, which is literally a diary entry where you make conclusions about society and make an entire ethnographic claims about how society operates based on your own personal experience as a person. It's like the maximum of, of bias. That's actually a funny point. We'll return to about the biasing here, but Anyway, this is what critical race theorists do. They bring in these perspectives of experiential knowledge, which is often silenced in academia. Probably because up until quite recently, that was citing a, uh, sorry, that was, that was a page number. I was going to say it's citing a paper from 1997, but it's actually um, page 97, sorry. Uh, often silenced in academia because rigorous research, because rigorous research, because rigorous research doesn't proceed from experiential Knowledge because everybody who knows what they're doing to find out the truth about the world understands that your truth and my truth are biased takes. They're not even truths, they're biased, and you have to carve away at those to get to the actual truth because people tend to be bad arbiters of what's actually happening to them all you have to do is consider one person having a panic attack who believes they're having a heart attack to realize that you have a you can you can have it be having a lived experience that is very different than what's really happening and that if your lived experience was you had you forced say the medical professional in that case to to accept your lived experience as though your truth is true and they put the defrib on you you're going to die right it turns out it's easy to misperceive. Every time you've been sick in your life, you probably don't know how you got sick. Or most times, you probably don't know how you got sick. Every time you've got food poisoning, I can almost guarantee you, you don't know what you ate. Most people are like, oh, the chicken must have been bad, but it, studies have shown that chicken has been cooked. It was probably the salad. It was probably something in the salad bar or cross contamination on something raw that wasn't cooked. You probably don't actually know how you got sick. Uh, lived experience you're going to come to a conclusion, but your conclusion is, is often wrong. And there's lots of superstitions that come into deciding how these things happen. Lived experience, your truth is not enough. So experience, you know, experiential knowledge is often silenced in academia. Well, only when you want to get the right answers, but within the activist literature, it's not only, I said bullshit, it's not only not silenced, it's encouraged and promoted. And what it's doing is destroying the rigor of academic research. And here's a call that we need to do more of that because these people are critical race theorists. That's why. Um, the knowledge they write arising from a scholar activist practice is a perspectival situated knowledge, one which utilizes academic privilege to address the pro- problematics of social change. So that's what I'm telling you. This is critical theory. The goal is that they are going to have a uh, normative, perfected vision of society and a moral vision to get to a perfected society and what that will be like and what, what morals are required to have it. They're going to then uh, complain about how it is not there yet, and they're going to use activism even in the in the realm of scholarship where it's least welcome, as uh, a method of doing it, a method of achieving that world uh, uh, through social change. Right, we're going to address the problematics of social change. We've got to figure out how we're, even the stuff that we do that's trying to create change is still problematic, and we're going to come at it not through rigorous analysis of what's actually happening, but experiential knowledge and perspectival and situated knowledge. Um, I like how they say that they use academic privilege. So what they're doing is trying to wash their hands of the fact that they realize that what they're doing is super bougie. Uh, these are the most bougie people in the freaking world. Um, these fancy pants academics are going to tell us how everything in the world is that is plainly fine is a big problem that we didn't understand. And now we have to live according to their rules. Um, They also interrogate their own positionality. I'll read that. Positionality is the concept in intersectionality that says you have to engage your social position in terms of what your identity categories are in order to be understood in terms of what you have to say, what you have authority on, and what's known as standpoint epistemology as it has evolved into intersectionality, not the old standpoint epistemology of radical feminism. And so they engage their positionality. Here's what they write. A discussion on positionality is required due to our professional and cultural connections to the study. No, it's not. Uh, You're just trying to assert your authority that you um, are not white and have family issues or whatever connected to some of the themes. And therefore you're, you're claiming that your biased perspective is more valuable. That's what you're actually doing. That's what your discussion on positionality, you're asserting your authority through your identity. That's what these authors are doing. Katie, They write, is a director and Japanese-American researcher for the critical literacy organization The Conscious Kid. This I really want to linger on The Conscious Kid because what is The Conscious Kid? The Conscious Kid is woke, conscious, woke. Uh, The Conscious Kid has critical consciousness. The Conscious Kid has been reprogrammed into critical theory. This is the organization that Katie is director of. Uh, Her grandparents were incarcerated at Manzanar and uh, Minidoka concentration camps during World War II, so her family was directly impacted by the anti-Japanese rhetoric and hysteria that Seuss fueled and espoused. It is true, Seuss was pretty anti-Japanese during World War II. Um, I guess Katie's family was directly impacted by that. What that has to do with Katie's opinion um, is unclear. Uh, It's well known, for example, if you are on a jury and you have some personal animus you will be excused from that jury um, you're not a neutral juror any longer because your bias prevents you from seeing clearly uh, same kind of thing is when somebody has been negatively impacted or very positively impacted by a law they're not considered to be the best arbiters of what needs to be done regarding changing laws, uh, that are relevant or changing that particular law. Uh, same reason because your bias actually clouds your judgment and having people whose judgment is less clouded is actually necessary. Critical theory, critical race theory in particular flips that on its head. Uh, so who's Ramon, the other author, he is a director and black capital B male educator for the conscious kid, same activist group. Remember this is about children's literature. Right. So there's a conflict of interest here, too, because I'm sure the conscious kid has lots of stuff to recommend about what is the right stuff to read. They probably publish materials. We're going to get rid of Dr. Seuss. We're going to put in stuff that the conscious kid recommends, perhaps. Uh, But the conflict of interest doesn't matter because it's activism and activism is important in scholarship. We're just told that a CRT framework. So I guess this is Ramon was employed due to his professional training. He's a critical race theorist and to address black teacher advocacy in teaching black educators have historically advocated for black and marginalized students employing experiential knowledge to positively support underprivileged students and student groups. That's a lot of big words. um, That means that they're trying to play favoritism and to match black students to black teachers uh, and to uh, kind of lock into cultural frames. Um, And they claim that that is positively supporting. And I think that's an empirical question. I think it's an open question. I think it's a worthy question, but um, at there's a subtle little racism here too, right? Uh, employing a black and marginalized students, employing experiential knowledge to positively support underprivileged students and student groups, but, but they mean black. So they're saying that, you, you know, well, what about privileged black people? Where do they fall into this? Because they exist. Um, there, there are rich black people and there are, uh, they're probably accused of acting white though. I'm not going to read too much into it, but that's a thing that happens a lot with critical race theorists. Uh, Barack Obama has an entire book that was written about him by the critical race theory activist called Acting White. Um, in addition, we, so this is the authors, are also parents, um, so that that's part of their positionality. They have children, so obviously they're going to be freaked out that their children might read Dr. Seuss. Our disposition toward critical literacy stems from our professional research and parenting experiences, first person, biased. Demonstrate a lack of racially diverse, empowering children's literature of empowering, empowering children's literature in what way? Like anti-racist baby way, like in what way? Available that is written by in-group community members. Mm -hmm. Our professional research and personal experiences have led us to conduct this study. In other words, we had an ax to grind. Uh, We do not consider this predisposition to critical literacy a bias deficit rather we provide a counter narrative for how one's cultural and professional experiences can add as opposed to subtract to the wealth of knowledge into the research used to guide this study i'm telling you i'm telling you they are literally saying we are biased but we don't think that our bias is a problem in fact our bias is a benefit that's what they're actually saying with those three sentences or four sentences there. They try to back it up. According to Tyrone Howard, counter storytelling gives agency to black folks, offering narratives which can, quote, counter much of the rhetorical accounts of their identities that frequently describe them as culturally and socially deficient, uneducated, um, unmotivated, and prone prone to violence and anti-intellectual. I mean, critical race theory, especially with the anti-intellectual thing, uh, like you can't analyze stuff for yourself. It's just critical race theory is Kind of all of those things. There's a lot of projection going on here, but granted... Perhaps you're going to be able to pick some of that stuff up in Dr. Seuss's stuff written in the 1930s and 1940s, but it's, again, not very likely that many people today are going to be confused by this. And it is, of course, I hate to use teaching moment, but it is actually an opportunity because that's been co-opted, by the way, but it is actually an opportunity for normal parents and their children to have a discussion. Yeah, things were different back then. Things are better now. But critical theorists do not want a story told that things have got better. Um, And they certainly don't want uh anti-racism that's going to be presented in a colorblind fashion, as we're going to see. I'm going to try to skip over the research methods for the most part. It's very tedious. I'll kind of hit some highlights. It's hard to hit all of this because it's so spread out, but this part's, I think, hilarious. The study assessed 50 of 59 Dr. Seuss, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss's children's books using a mixed method research design. Nine books were not analyzed due to their unavailability from local public libraries. <laughs> uh... Seriously, uh, good work done there, guys. Um, Nine books were not analyzed due to their unavailability from local public libraries, the Giesel Library at the University of California San Diego, and online library sources. So you didn't have immediate free access to all 59 books, so you just left the ones you couldn't find out. that's fine, I suppose. You don't really have to do all of them, but I just think it's hilarious. Like, this is how rigorous and deep the research is. You know, we were too lazy to go find the other nine books, so uh, to do any actual effort. And so, you know, we just didn't talk about those. We just talked about 50 of them. Um, all of this is done through a mixed methods research that, that uses a lot of coding. Coding is a, a complicated thing to explain in brief, so I won't. But what they do is they look for behaviors or depictions or whatever, and they assigned codes to them. Like, this is this thing, this is that thing, uh, often using numbers or whatever. And they said that they explained their coding method here. But uh, codes are, are, let's see, um, upon analyzing the text, codes emerged outside of that source that aligned with a the theoretical framework. So they pr- pr- produce a theory like that the book is racist, and then they code it according to that theory. They were provided uh, additional definitions. Codes were then applied to critically, under, critically understand how both human characters and non-human characters with racialized features were depicted in Seuss's texts. Um, and they did frequency counts of things like, one, account of the number of times white human characters appear in each children's book. Two, account of the number of times human characters of color in each children's book. Uh, codes used to identify emergent themes include dominance. I love this one controlling prevailing or powerful position, especially in a social hierarchy. So what they consider to be dominance is pretty hilarious in some of these cases, um, master narrative narratives heard most often and most loudly, given that those in control, mostly whites control the volume levels, um, subservience, dehumanization, exotification, stereotypes, caricature, and visibility. this is a funny one. People or marginal groups who are not seen in children's books provides implications about who matters and who doesn't in our society. Remember, these things were written in like 1939, 1954, and things like that. Invisibility in a storybook, in storybooks, undermine children's affirmative sense of themselves and reinforces prejudice ideas about the groups often underrepresented. Um, perhaps. I'm sure it's more complicated than this. Uh, silence. Colorblindness. Right. Deliberately, race-neutral governmental policy said to promote the goal of racial equality rather than equity, ignoring race, racism, and the social, historical, and present effects they have, not seeing color, including the cultural wealth of uh, communities of color. That's what they call color blindness. Um, relationships, non-human relationships. Uh, emergent themes include orientalism, anti-blackness, and white supremacy. Um, I'll kind of skip down here. Findings in the 50 Dr. Seuss's children's books, 2,240 human characters are identified. I'm sure human is a stretch here, uh, humanoid in many cases. Of the 2,240 characters, I mean, this is probably also when there's a there's a crowd drawn or whatever and it's all the faces. There are 45 characters of color representing 2% of the total number of human characters in books written mostly from the 1930s to the 1950s in America. Uh of course, but the context has to be ignored. Dr. Seuss should have been much more progressive in putting lots of them in there, which would have allowed them to create more opportunities to complain that he didn't do so progressively enough because he wrote them as stereotypes or something. The eight books featuring characters of color include, uh, he lists a bunch of them, of the forty-five characters of color, 43 are identified as having characteristics aligning with the definition of Orientalism. In other words, they they look they're drawn to look somewhat stereotypical. Um, they go on and on about this kind of thing. Like only two of the 45 characters are identified in the text as African, and both of these align with the theme of anti-blackness. White supremacy is seen through the centering of this is my favorite part of this. White supremacy is seen through the centering of white. Whiteness and white characters, who comprise 98% of all characters. White supremacy is seen through the centering of whiteness and white characters. There's no white supremacy, in other words. There's no white supremacy. White supremacy, one of the major themes that they're identifying, is seen through the fact that his characters were largely white, writing between the 1930s and 1950s. That's white supremacy. There's no white is better. Happening here. There's no actual white supremacy. It's coded white supremacy that's seen through the centering of whiteness and white characters. This is the kind of analysis that these idiots do. Um, And again, like I keep, I have to bring it back up. The point is to tear down the value. You are not allowed to think positively of Dr. Seuss. That's the goal here because Dr. Seuss is a common cultural reference for people in the West. Lots of us grew up with it. We want our children to grow up with it. That shared passed on cultural identification and uh repository is the thing that has to be torn down because Alfabendor culture that cultural thing has to be broken because it's too big, it's too influential, and it has to be replaced with something else. That's the real goal here. Um in addition, some of Dr. Seuss's most iconic books feature animal or non-human characters that transmit Orientalist, anti-black, and white supremacist messaging through allegories and symbolism. These are a bit tendent, tendent, uh, tendentious as well. So he talks about where each of these features, Orientalism, anti-blackness, and uh, white supremacy. Orientalism, they list, they list all the books uh, that they think that they found this in, and um, Books with human characters that were analyzed for uh, Orientalism include, *Into to think I saw it on Mulberry Street, on Beyond Zebra, If I Ran the Zoo, Oh, The Places You Go, The Cat's Quizzler, so on and so forth. There's maybe like nine of them or something. I didn't count. Uh, what they what, what their point is that East Asian characters, again, remember the dates, um, 30s, 40s, 50s, East Asian characters are portrayed as looking clearly East Asian. <laughs> um. It says that they are featured in subservient roles. This is somewhat true. Hunting down or carrying exotic animals for a white male. Uh, this is in um, "If I Ran the Zoo" in particular, uh, which is the is a book depicting the fantasy of a young white boy going around the world and collecting animals and having he's basically marching around like king of the world, as he would do if he were actually a famous animal hunter and a boy's fantasy and people wherever he is are helping him, uh, do what he does. Um, but that context isn't to be, uh, you know, there's not to be any excuse given for that contact context there. They're just, Oh, they're in subservient roles. And sometimes it actually is a little bit, there are some places where it dips into that. Um, they note this in the in the book, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, exotification and stereotypes are seen when a Chinese man is drawn with chopsticks and a bowl of rice in his hands. A bright yellow skin, slanted eyes, a long black braid, and a conical hat. The text beneath him reads, A Chinaman Who Eats With Sticks. In 1978, Seuss updated that text to read, A Chinese Man Who Eats With Sticks, and removed the bright yellow skin and ponytail. The revised character retained the bowl of rice chopsticks, hat, conical hat, and slanted eyes. Both versions of the Chinese man depict him in shoes with an elevated wood base, traditional of Japanese footwear called geta. And so... You can get the flavor for the kind of complaining here. Dr. Seuss did say Chinaman. They decided Chinaman was racist, so they replaced it. With, he replaced it with Chinese men and toned down some of the stereotyping um, later in the '70s. That would indicate that he's making progress individually, but that wasn't good enough. He still didn't go all the way. Um, and the Cat's Quizler, uh, are you smarter than the Cat? In the, hat? the Japanese character is referred to as a Japanese. Has a bright yellow face and is standing on a pier- what appears to be Mount Fuji, which turns out to be a Japanese icon. Um, and three and only three Asian characters who are not wearing conical hats are carrying a white male on their heads. In if I ran the zoo, this is a um, this is an interesting illustration. I actually opened if I ran the zoo and read it. Uh, we'll see it again here. here are the turban wearing characters. Let's hop over and see. What's going on in that particular image? Um, so, the picture shows what appears to be a conical hat wearing Asian woman, although they said that there are no women of color and any of it carrying some giant chicken thing down the hill. On the other side of the hill, you have three uh, clearly Asian stereotypical looking men wearing the wooden shoes and with their hands folded. And balanced on their head is a cage containing some large animal. And then on top of the cage is our little uh, our little hero who's going to own the zoo. And he's standing there with a hat and a gun on top of the cage with a gun. So he's on top of a cage containing some wild animal that doesn't exist that's being carried by, carried by Chinese people. So this is a little bit of a disingenuous uh, portrayal in the paper where it says that uh Uh, the Asian characters who are not wearing conical hats are carrying a white male on their heads. Well, no, they're carrying a cage on their heads, and he's on top of the the cage. And the cage isn't like a throne. It contains a wild animal. It says the white male is not only on top of it and being carried by these Asian characters, but he is also holding a gun, illustrating dominance. He's supposed to be hunting animals, illustrating dominance. So they're reading The Hunter is illustrating dominance of white child over... Asian helpers, as the thing puts it. The text beneath the Asian characters describes them as helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant from countries no one can spell. This is completely disingenuous, as a matter of fact. I'll just read the text uh, as best I can out loud. It's hard to read Seuss out loud when you don't practice. The text on this in the next page, which you'll notice it's not even on this page, uh, what he just said, the text says, I'll hunt in the mountains of Zamba Matant with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant. So, I guess it's Zomba Matant with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant and capture a fine fluffy bird called the Bustard who only eats custard with sauce made of mustard, and also a very fine beast called the Flustered who only eats mustard with sauce made of custard. Lots of these fun little linguistic things. Did you hear the thing about. So, you hear that with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant thing indicating that he's somewhere in Asia in a fictional place in the mountains, Zomba Matant. Doesn't exist, catching a bird that doesn't exist, in this wild cat looking thing that doesn't exist, uh, which is I guess the flustered. And the bird is a bustard, because it rhymes with mustard and custard, which is a linguistic game. And then the next page says, I'll catch him in caves and I'll catch them in brooks, I'll catch them in crannies, I'll catch them in nooks that you don't uh, that you don't read about in geography books. That's at the top left, down in the bottom. I'll catch them in countries that no one can spell, like the country of Matafa Hell. In a country like that, if a hunter is clever, he'll hunt up some beasts you never saw ever. So it's not even the same place. In fact, the picture shows him on a boat in this next page uh, in a fictional country that no one can spell, um, which is not what's implied by this paper at all, but that's how they advance this narrative is to continually just kind of take things out of context and complain. Again, to read that, unless you've actually heard it, it's across two pages in If I Ran the Zoo. The white male is not only on top of and being carried by these Asian characters, but he's also holding a gun illustrating dominance because he's a hunter. Then text beneath the Asian characters describes them as helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant. That is true. Um, from countries no one can spell no that's actually something different Uh, so it's actually misinterpreted this book gets hit again with turban wearing characters where exotification stereotypes dominance and dehumanization are seen across the turban wearing character illustrations you know it's very helpful you're not allowed to do it anymore and maybe that makes sense i don't think it makes sense actually it's very helpful when you're trying to make to condense information to make it simple like in a children's book to use kind of caricatures. People understand caricatures. We use caricatures in political cartoons all the time. And perhaps these aren't the best caricatures, but if lots and lots of people in a particular region wear a certain type of dress, caricaturing that type of dress to concisely communicate that that's what they are is not necessarily stereotyping or, or being uh, inappropriate, especially when you're talking about something that was going on hundred years ago or 80 years ago or 60 years ago. But anyway, um, it's again a bit tendentious. Exotification stereotypes are seen in illustrations. where These characters have large feathers coming out of the top of their turbans and are curl, wearing curled-toed slippers. This is seen in books such as Ambion Zebra, where there's a man on a camel wearing an oversized turban and a long mustache. The horror. Um, although the characters and locations are mostly, mostly ethnically and nationally ambiguous because they're made-up places, because he wasn't actually doing that, uh, what they're accusing of. Uh, illustrations in books such as Oh, the Places You Go situate exaggerated depictions of Persian, Middle Eastern, and Indian character uh, architecture with an Oriental- orientalist lens. Um, that's how you communicate setting in a quick kind of way, but whatever. Um, it's this all, it's the same kind of complaining again and again. Um, But here it says 17 of the characters across Seuss's collection are wearing turbans and serve a dominated and or dehumanized role in relation to dominant white males. Um, Lots of different examples are given, uh, but I'll skip down to the one out of um, If I Ran the Zoo, when the white male, remember this is the boy having a fantasy about what he would do to gather animals that don't exist because lions are too boring. That's how the, the, the story opens in If I Ran a Zoo. Um dehumanization is seen and if i ran the zoo and a white male says he's going to put a person of color wearing a turban on display in a zoo um possibly ambiguous the white male states a mulagatani is fine for my zoo and so is a chieftain referring to the man in the turban i'll bring one back too okay the theme, this theme of dehumanization and white supremacy reflects a long history of people of color such as sarah bartman being disple- uh, being placed on display in zoos for entertainment of white people Exotification is seen in the naming, the animal. Uh, the turban wearing man is riding on Mulligatawny, the name of an actual Indian curry flavored chicken soup. Um, the animal is yellow in color, which reflects the color of the soup. That may or may not actually be true. The animal is yellow, but it resembles a camel, which are also rather yellow. Um, it's looking at the image it's difficult to see it as a particularly racist depiction of a middle easterner Uh, again the animal is clearly not a camel but resembles kind of a camel which would be a middle eastern type animal riding through the desert it's a very dr seuss kind of image Um, the actual language in the book reads i'll capture them fat and i'll capture them scrawny i'll capture a scragglefoot mulligatawny a high-stepping animal fast as the wind from the blistering desert, blistering sands of the desert of Zin. This beast is the beast that the brave chieftains ride when they want to go fast and find some place to hide. A mulligatawny is fine for my zoo, and so is a chieftain, I'll bring one back too. That's actually what is written there. Um, so maybe there's an argument about the chieftain thing but again this is just a discussion that can be had the characters such as the chieftain and the slant uh, the eyes at a slant characters are characterized throughout as helpers and near the end of the book they're actually depicted as the people not in cages but actually working in his fancy zoo that he wants to establish all these magical animals appears, I don't know which page it's on, 30 or so, McGrew's Zoo, huge thing. You have um, lots of goofy, non-existent animals in cages, and you have lots of people rushing in to see. Uh, There's a lot going on in the picture. I don't see any people in cages whatsoever, Uh, just lots of non-existent animals. Um, in a very Dr. Seuss way, and then in every of these different locations, which are fictional countries around the world that he goes, the people who are native to that area allegedly help him do that, Um, and you see, you know, these kinds of uh, complaints, you know, don't touch on what you see on, say, page uh, 26, where he's clearly in Russia, and you have a very stereotypical kind of Russian building with the kind of ice cream cone... uh, bulb at the top in the background, walking through the snow in a pine forest, carrying some kind of a weird chicken with his Russian hat and a bunch of bullets and gun, uh, gun slung over his back with a bunch of bullets. Cause he's a hunter, the clear, you know, it's a clear Russian caricature here. Um, in fact, Russian is mentioned one of the few times a real country is mentioned in this entire book it says, and speaking of birds as the Russian poluski whose head ski is red ski and belly is blue ski. I'll get one of them for my Zuski Magruski. Um, this is much more uh, kind of obviously, you know, dipping into a caricature of a, of a national or ethnic group, but you don't hear that it doesn't come up in the, this paper at all, right? It doesn't come up in the paper at all. Um, the question, I guess, is open whether or not this kind of thing is appropriate, but I don't actually think that what we're seeing in the paper is a very uh, proper representation of what Dr. Seuss was doing, or how he was doing it, or what it was for, or how it's actually going to be picked up in reality in the world today. So we'll move on from um, If I Ran the Zoo, and we'll jump over to Horton Here's a Who, because here he talks about non-human characters, or they, it's two people, sorry, Horton Hears a Who is one of Dr. Seuss's books widely cited as promoting tolerance. Several Seuss scholars infer that the Whos symbolize the Japanese, and that the book is an apology for his anti-Japanese World War II propaganda. Um, Dartmouth professor and Seuss biographer Donald Peace calls Horton Hears a Who, quote, an explicit act of recantation of the caricatures of the Japanese that he had constructed. So this book was like 1954 three or four, I forget, something like that. Uh, we'll, we'll run into it later. And obviously the Japanese internment World War II was in, you know, 43, 44, 45. And um, Seuss turns out to have been on the wrong side of that one. And here uh, it's alleged that this book, which is kind of super anti-racist and super uh, progressive, is kind of him apologizing for that. But what do they? What do the authors of this paper say? However, Seuss never issued an actual, explicit, or direct apology or recantation of his anti-Japanese propaganda, or the calls he made to kill Japs. End quote. Um, so, what do we have going on here, right? Like Seuss didn't sacrifice his moral authority according to the demands that critical race theory would make today. Therefore. His changing his mind wasn't good enough. That's what we have here. This is the kind of mentality, and that's what we have to cancel a cultural uh, anchor over. Uh, We have to taint that cultural anchor. And then we have this impact versus intent nonsense. The next part, regardless of the intention of the book, the impact is that it reinforces themes of white supremacy, Orientalism, and white saviorism. I contend that that's literally impossible to read, literally impossible to read in Horton here's a Who, which is about an elephant. Without some serious, serious work, uh, like you have to read that into it, um, it positions the who's in a deficit-based framework as the dominant paternalistic Horton enacts the white savior and savior industrial complex. So the story, if you've forgotten Horton, here's a who. By the way, just to the Japanese thing, there's probably something to that. The very beginning of the book, um, this PDF moves slowly, so bear with me a second. Uh, I don't know why it moves so slowly. Because even in the future, nothing works. Is why. Um, I thought I had the page. I had a different page. He actually writes here. It is for my great friend Mitsugi Nakamura of Kyoto, Japan, as the dedication of Horton. Here is a who. So that's probably where these um, scholars got this idea. So here, here's what we have. You know this this. White Savior Industrial Complex. It positions the Who's in a deficit-based framework as a dominant paternalistic Horton enacts the White Savior Industrial Complex. Let's read a little Horton here as a Who at the very beginning. On the 15th day of May in the jungle of Newell, in the heat of the day, and the cool of the pool, he was splashing, enjoying the jungle's great joys when Horton the elephant heard a small noise. And it shows Horton all perked up, looking at a speck of dust flying to his head, as he sits in his pool in the jungle of Newell. So Horton stopped splashing. He looked toward the sound. That's funny, thought Horton. There's no one around. Then he heard it again, just a very faint yelp, as if some tiny person were calling for help. I'll help you, said Horton, but who are you? Where? He looked and he looked. He could see nothing there, but a small speck of dust blowing past through the air. Now, why are we talking about an elephant here? Obviously, they have big ears, so they can hear a tiny speck of dust. The Who's, Whoville, is a civilization or a city of people that live on a speck of dust that are very, very tiny. Um, And so he hears them calling for help with his giant elephant ears. Um, And then he ruminates. I say, murmured Horton, I've never heard tell of a small speck of dust that is able to yell. So you know what I think? Why I think that there must be someone on top of that small speck of dust. Some sort of creature of very small size, too small to be seen by an elephant's eyes. So hearing a voice um, and caring, some poor little person who's shaking with fear that he'll blow in the pool, he has no way to steer, I'll just have to save him, because after all, a person's a person, no matter how small. That's white savior industrial complex right there, right? There's Horton when his... <laughs> In his The Positions of Who's that live on a speck of dust blowing through the wind in a deficit-based framework as the dominant paternalistic Horton enacts the white savior industrial complex, nothing on earth is served by this BS. Nothing is better because of this BS. But this is exactly what this paper is all about, um, is doing that so that it can tear things down, uh, especially cultural anchors like Dr. Seuss. The, they, they they then cite Twitter um, saying that the Nigerian American novelist Teju Cole coined the term white saver industrial complex in a series of 2012 tweets that he later cited in an article for the Atlantic, which is a funny statement in and of itself. Quote, the white saver and savior industrial complex is not about justice. It's about having a big emotional experience. that validates privilege. That's Horton, right? He's just trying to help these little, little dudes on a speck of dust that he can hear and is worried about. But no. It's not about justice. A person is a person, no matter how small, I have to save them. No, 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 no. They have no power because they're blown around a speck of dust. No, 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 it's not that. It's about having a big emotional experience that validates privilege. So Horton is obviously this selfish jerk. Um, This world exists simply to satisfy the needs, including, importantly, the sentimental needs of white people, or apparently elephants. Uh, The white savior... Supports brutal policies in the morning, founds charities in the afternoons, and receives awards in the evening. He must be talking about woke people and some iron law of woke projection here because this is just nonsense to average everyday people, average everyday uh, Americans in particular. Uh, Brittany A. Aronson explains, quote, ultimately the people are rewarded from saving those less fortunate and are able to completely disregard the policies they have supported that have created maintained systems of oppression. What do the authors of this brilliant paper say about this? Not only does a white savior narrative play out within Horton Hears a Who, Seuss himself is positioned as a white savior for writing it. Uh, although he supported and fueled the mass incarceration and killing of the Japanese and Japanese Americans, he's lauded for his tolerance for writing an allegory about saving them. In the book, the Whos are helpless, who need to be saved, and are protected by the bigger, more powerful white savior Horton. <laughs> it's just so tedious um this is why we're canceling just let me bring that back for a second this is why we're canceling uh doctor who now or sorry not doctor who well we'll probably cancel that soon this is why we're the who's got in my head this is why we're canceling dr seuss we're canceling Dr. Seuss because the Japanese slash Who's are depicted as exotic, backwards, uncivilized, dangerous in relation to Americans in need of saving. None of that's true. The Who's certainly are not. They're not depicted as exotic. They're depicted as small. They're not predict- depicted as backwards. They have an entire civilization. They talk about how while your, our buildings are for you would be marvelously small, for us they're marvelously tall. Uh, they're not depicted as uncivilized. They have a city and a mayor and musical instruments and all kinds of stuff. And they're certainly not, certainly not depicted as dangerous in relation to Americans. They are depicted as in need of saving because they live in a moat of dust that's blowing in the wind and might fall in a pool, and which would destroy their entire civilization. Um, note that Horton, I love this here, um, North, note that Horton is the one who decides that the Who's need to be saved in the first place. Okay, And that he himself defines and dictates the actions needed to save them, including when he directs the Whos to prove their existence. The Whos don't speak a word to Horton until page 18 of the book. That's not true. The first thing he does is he hears a yelp, which uh, he perceives as a call for help. but they don't speak a word to Horton until page 18 of the book, not explicitly. Yet yeah, Horton starts his work of saving them and deciding and defining what it means to save them on page three. Remember this, I know this is ridiculous to talk about. What happened on page three? Horton the elephant is sitting in a pool in the jungle of Newell, and the pool is very cool, and he's sitting in it and he hears a cry for help or a yelp but he can't see what it is. Sees Seizes a speck of dust blowing around over the pool, realizes if, there's, if there are people on that thing, a person's a person, no matter how small, and it goes in the water, they're toast. So he sets about making sure that won't happen. What's he supposed to have done here? Let them die? Let them drown? What's he supposed to have done? What's he supposed to have done? It's ridiculous that this is the thing they're complaining about, but this is the kind of ginned up garbage that we have to, to deal with these days. Um, And I wanted to point this out. I know this is a little long and tedious, but I want to point out that this is an academic paper analyzing Doctor Who at a level that's nobody needs, first of all, and that's not helping anything, second of all. It's just horrific that this is even happening, to be honest. It's contributing nothing. It's tearing things apart. And that's why you have to realize that this is happening within a broader context. The goal is Alf Habender Kultur. The goal is the negation, the abolishment of the existing culture to take away all cultural anchors where people can relate to one another and understand one another in a common cultural framework so that that cultural framework can be bulldozed away and replaced with a new one. Total systemic change. That's what they call uh, call it. That's what they talk about all the time. Um, I like this too. Another problem problematic aspect of the story is the insistence on the who's having to prove their existence so they won't be killed. Because uh, the other animals say that Horton's nuts, he's got his giant ears, he can hear it. They say, well, we can't hear it. It's not real. And they all are like trying to persecute Horton for trying to be this Uh, for taking up this thing. They're making fun of him. They're going to, you know, they they take the clover that that Horton puts the Whoville on the dust and they go and drop it with some, they give it to some black-butted eagle or something and it drops it in a field of clover. They try to, Horton has to sort through three million clovers to find them, but he does anyway. And then they're going to boil them in a stew and all of this stuff. And so the the plot device of the story is that horton's telling them you have to make more noise so the other animals will hear you you have to make enough noise to be heard or you you won't be heard and you'll get destroyed which is kind of it isn't that the goal of their freaking activism in the first place but anyway um this is a problematic aspect of the story horton commands the mayor of the who's commands uh you've got to prove now that you really are there you very small persons will not have to die if you make yourselves heard. so come on now and try. Um, right, so the other the other animals are mocking Horton, and they demand evidence uh, before they're going to believe him. And what the researchers, if you will call them that, here say is the responsibility of whether or not the who's get killed is placed on the who's themselves, not their aggressors. There's no action taken to challenge or defend against the violent threats of the kangaroos and monkeys who want to kill them. As in today's racial context, people of color are forced to prove their right to life and that their lives matter. Who matters in quotes there. Um, When violently killed, people of color, especially black people, are often blamed for their own deaths, while white perpetrators of crimes against them are often not held accountable. I don't even think that's true. But anyway same kind of, I mean, this is the kind of thing I would have written if I was writing this as a fake paper. It's exactly the kind of nonsense I would have written. You're like, we're just, let me make this leap here. We're going to take this plot device and then say, oh, this is exactly like how, uh, you know, when minority groups have to speak up for themselves and be heard in order to to um, have it understood what's going on. No, 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 no. The critical perspective is that all of the people in positions of privilege have to lean into their white guilt far enough or their dominant guilt far enough to understand in and of itself how they can create, I mean, do you see the building over grift How they can create an ideal situation for the the other people. They should realize it themselves. And that's what Dr. Seuss was guilty of, is he didn't realize it himself uh, quick enough. Um, one more dipping in, I guess, from, is this from the, uh, the, the, the zoo um, there. Yeah. So the anti-blackness, I don't want to like keep dragging through all of this, but it says, you know, they, he goes to, and, and if I ran the zoo, uh, goes to all these different exotic locations and the helpers help him catch animals. He's a little white boy and he's a hunter going to make a perfect zoo with like 10-footed lions and things like that that don't exist, all these animals that don't have real names. Uh, it says, the simian features Seuss gave African men are consistent with the way he depicted Africans and African-Americans in and other published works throughout his career. Described as residing in Africa, these two black characters are portrayed through an exotified lens. Both are shirtless, shoeless, wearing grass skirts, and have tufts of hair pointed out, at, uh, sprouting out of their head. The mirror, the tuft of head on, ex- on the exotic animal they're carrying. How weird that they would have similar features in the drawings, uh, in a children's book. They're placed in a subservient role, carrying an animal to a white male child zoo. That's what all the helpers in the entire story do. But anyway, The text accompanying the image of black man carrying a long-necked bird reads, I'll go to the African island of Yerka and bring back a tizzle-topped, tufted mazurka, a kind of canary with quite a tall throat. His neck is so long, if he swallows a note for breakfast the first day of April, they say it has to go down such a very long way that it gets to his stomach the 15th of May. This appears to be a reference to the the tradition in some African and Asian cultures of wearing neck rings. Well, that's just where did that come from? Right? Sure. Of course. And so that's what he's really wanting to put in his zoo his long neck quote African animal being taken to put on display in a white man's zoo. Uh, so tendentious does the same kind of thing. I'm not going to go into it with cat in the hat, just all kinds of stuff about how it's minstrel shows. But here we get to, to white supremacy is kind of a fun, a fun, uh, Analysis here, you know, the white characters of human characters codes revealed a theme of white supremacy that include master narrative, silence, dominance. Remember, dominance was the the hunter kid with a gun on top of a cage of an animal that was on top of his helpers that were carrying it for him. That's dominance, relationships and subservience. Uh, when coding for master narrative, 98% of the human characters in Dr. Seuss's children's books are white, and the books are solely narrated by white characters. Uh, duh, they were written in America in 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Um, White characters also dominate 100% of the speaking roles while characters of color remain entirely silent throughout all books. In addition, most of the books only have one or two speaking characters by the way. Um, And that's not actually true because they said that the cat in the hat is based off of a black woman and the cat in the hat speaks all through the cat in the hat stuff. So, But then no, it's apparently in blackface is what's really going on there. Um, can't have it both ways, I guess. Um white characters are always in a dominant relational role to characters of color because they're the protagonists, and that's what happens in those kinds of books. In addition, white characters are uh whoops, sorry, I that part no, I didn't. In addition, white characters are always in a dominant relational role to characters of color, with characters of color driving, entertaining, or working for them. White characters also express dominance when they are seen, enforcing their status or positions with guns or whips. Um they bring up the white boy stands on a white boy holds a large gun while standing on the heads of three asian men which isn't even true stands on top of a cage containing an animal that the men are carrying uh he does have a gun but it's by his side and he's a hunter uh, of animals so of course he would have a gun and he's also a boy so the gun's actually not that large um (laughs) white characters particularly white males also hold all the professional roles in the book such as teachers doctors policemen and mayors Again, we don't even point out that this was all published in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, non human characters, same thing. The Sneeches, we got to dive into the Sneeches for a second, and I'll try to bring this home. Dr. Seuss first published The Sneeches in a Red Book in 1953. He said it was inspired by his opposition to anti Semitism, but a friend told him that it was actually anti Semitic, so he put it aside. Random House compelled him to revise the book, and it was published in 1961. Sounds like exactly the kind of thing a crazy racist would do, right? Um, he wrote the book thinking he's writing something anti-Semitic. Somebody tells him that it actually is anti-Semitic, so he puts it away, doesn't, pub- doesn't run with it, and then revises it and republishes it uh, eight years later. Sounds like the kind of thing a raging bigot is, is, is up to. It features only non-human characters and tells a story through allegories and symbolism based, uh, because this book published 65 years ago is being taught as anti-racist in 2018. It was analyzed through a racial lens. Our analysis revealed that when taught as anti-racist, it actually reinforces white supremacy shock that they would analyze a critical race theorist would come to that conclusion by upholding deficit-based disempowered narratives of oppressed groups and promoting color blindness. Now, I remember reading the the Sneeches when I was a kid and actually thinking it was about rich people and poor people, um, not about races. But in the end, the point is that uh, the stars become irrelevant, right? That's the whole point is like, you have the star-bellied and the not-star-bellied and then they switch the, the, the ones without them figure out how to get stars on their bellies, and the ones that have them decide that they're not elite anymore, and so they want to take the stars off their bellies. Um, and then they do, and then not having, they, they maintain their elitism by changing the fashion, which is kind of exactly what woke is doing. And then, or it's always what the bourgeois, what the elite classes are doing. And so then what happens is they end up having some kind of, this whole thing is just kind of like you know, you can see the spiral that, that would create. And so they end up realizing that maybe we should just know each other as individuals. And uh, instead of in terms of whether or not we have stars, it kind of overcomes difference. It's actually a very overcoming difference kind of book. Um, but as they write, um, the oppressed plain belly snitches are depicted as moping and doping and their self-hatred and spend all their time, energy and resources trying to be exactly like the dominant star bellied snitches. This is a problematic and misguided way of perceiving oppressed groups. Oppressed communities are generally fighting to hang on to their own culture and identity and have, and not have it colonized or race marginalized or appropriated by the dominant culture. Well, that's part of the problem. That's where multiculturalism is stupid and pluralism is good and people should be sharing uh, their cultures and not trying to hang on to engaging in cultural protectionism. but rather, you know, um, it doesn't why because it doesn't work. I don't care if people want to keep their culture, but it doesn't work. Establishing and enforcing and policing difference causes more establishing, enforcing and policing difference. It doesn't work that well. Um, Oppressed people want to be free of oppression. They do not want to be their oppressor. Oh, I doubt that. <laughs> I'm watching, man. I'm, I'm going to my eyeball emoji on you guys. Um, let me read that, that hilarious sentence again. Oppressed people want to be free of oppression. They do not want to be their oppressor. That. uh I don't think. First of all, I thought the story is about haves and have-nots, not about um, identity groups. But any at any rate, um, the woke clearly wanted to be dominant. They clearly are enacting dominance. They are clearly, in fact, being totalitarian. So this is this is a lie they tell themselves to feel better about what they're actually doing. Uh, it says the plain belly snitches never challenge the oppressor or the oppression itself. They never resist. I mean, part of their theory says that they can't, but okay. The only action they take is to disregard their own identity and culture and to take on the one of their oppressor. Again, I thought it was about haves and have-nots. This has happened with styles and things throughout history. The rich come up with a style that signifies them as rich, whether that's a linguistic and academic style maybe or not, and then the poor start to imitate it, and then the rich no longer having that then create some new one that's different often by... Going into something like maybe black culture, or going into poor culture, and then gentrifying some idea—don't you hear that in their own literature all the time? It's like they understand the dynamic, but willfully don't understand it, so they can complain about it. It's—it's it's not about what they're talking about. It's about that the elites are always looking for elite status, and then the the non-elites often copy that because it's a signal of elite status that they can have in some measurable quantity, um, and then the elites. Piss all over it so they can stay elite by doing something different. What do you think hipsterism is? Hipsterism is acting like you're like a poor dork and a loser, that you're too ironic. To, you know, so you dress in like trucker hats and drink PBR and wear some stupid, ironic t shirt and dress down and be grubby and whatever else to signal like how you're actually better than all of that because you can do it ironically. Right? It, it's really that's kind of what's happening here. That's really what this is an allegory for. But no. Uh, the only action they take is to disregard their own identity and culture to take on the one of their oppressor. The plain—these is just terrible analysis. There's no depth or understanding of what's going on at all. They're just complaining in kind of a stupid way. The plain-bellied snitches play out in an unrealistic scenario of overcoming the intentional discrimination of individual star-bellied snitches through conformity and assimilation. Yeah, cool. It's relatable content for people, isn't it? The book concludes with the plain-bellied snitches and star-bellied snitches getting confused as to who is oppressed and who is oppressor deconstruction right and they have no choice but to accept each other quote changing their stars every minute or two they kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who that day all the snitches forgot about the stars forgot about stars and whether they had one or not had one or not upon thars thars bellies this promotes a false and problematic narrative that forgetting or not acknowledging the historical narrative that impacts present day, present day race and not seeing difference, color blindness, are the solutions to racism. They are in reality, reality, <laughs> not only is not seeing race not possible, you don't have to make a deal of it, though. It should not be something children are encouraged to aspire to. Yes, it should. Further, using the work of an author with an extensive history of explicit racism to teach anti-racism distorts and erases the harm Seuss has done to oppressed groups. Yeah, you wouldn't want, want good things to happen or you wouldn't want growth or any of this. And so the rest of the paper it kind of continues. Again, this has gone really long, so I don't want to just keep drilling into the paper, but there's so much of it is just nonsense, you know debunking, you know, this study addresses a gap implications. This study addresses a gap in Seuss literature, because that needs to exist, by revealing how racism spans across the entire Seuss collection while debunking, that's to stain and taint his legacy so that all of it falls, while debunking myths about how books like Horton Hears a Who and The Sneetches can be used to promote tolerance, anti-bias, and anti-racism. Yeah, because you've got to replace them with books that their uh, organization will promote and publish. Of course, the grift is in there findings from the study promote awareness of the racist narratives and images in Dr. Seuss's children's books and implications, those are tendentious for the most part, uh, or dated for other parts, and implications to the formation and reinforcement of racial biases in children. That's not actually established that that works. Um, Psychologist Phyllis Katz, quote, found that children were less likely to maintain negative racial attitudes on the basis of race when exposed to positive individual images of people of color. Well, that's fine. That's, Maybe that's, maybe that's true, but that Dr. Seuss books don't contain them doesn't mean that other books don't. They, pe- people can read more than one book. Um, and like I said, most of the, many of like the Sneetches aren't even people. The Grinch, not a person. Who's technically, I mean, a person is a person no matter how small, but they're kind of not people. Horton's an elephant. Like these are allegories. Um, the stuff's not as relevant as as they want to make it out to be. Uh, In addition to positive imagery exposure, the larger goal is to reduce the impact of implicit bias on people's behavior by creating awareness around the existence of implicit bias and its roots within larger systemic and social conditions, including children's literature. That's what I said at the beginning. The point of this is to say that basically all of the roots of terrible things are happening in Seuss's books and in broadly in children's literature, and that's brainwashing children to reproduce those exact problems, which has literally no evidence to support it whatsoever and has much evidence to, to, that disagrees with it, as a matter of fact, but they're going to keep saying it because it's in line with the social constructivist thesis that's at the heart of what's going on. The proper name for wokeness, by the way, or one proper name for it is critical constructivism where they use the postmodern social constructivism and the neo-Marxist critical theory and put them together into one thing called critical constructivism. That's a fancy pants term. You can look it up though and see that that's exactly what wokeness really is. They write, this in in alignment with a large body, I'm assuming it's supposed to be this is in in alignment with a large body of research that demonstrates exposure to information regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion impacts one's future decisions by making processes and inspire... Sorry, there's not hyphens where they're supposed to be like anywhere here. This is grammatically ex- excellent, let me tell you. Impacts one's future decision making processes and inspires a conscious evaluation of judgments, interactions, and choices that may reify social and psychological oppressions. In other words, this might lead you to be a critical theorist. That's basically what they're saying. Um, Lots of the same kind of implications. They bring up the same points again about the racism here and there. They talked about the three people carrying on the hat again, without hats again, I should say. they, you know, just tie random things together. This is what we did in the Grievance Studies Affair. This finding is in alignment with findings from the UCLA's Hollywood Diversity Report that documents minimal representation of people of color in media, where whites are at the top of a hierarchy and black and brown representation is often delegated to dehumanized, subservient, or stereotypical roles, or is completely absent in comparison to whites. Right. They shoehorn in implications about gender, even though this hasn't been about, it's been about Orientalism, white supremacy, and anti-blackness, but now we're going to talk about gender. Implications of using Seuss to teach anti-racism. Um, books including Horton Here's a Who and the Sneeches, which are cited as promoting tolerance and anti-racism, by the way, including by lunatic uh, progressive woke entities like teaching tolerance, are inappropriate tools when teaching or providing trainings around such practices. A critical, meaning critical theory, analysis of of these books shows not only that marginal groups remain without a voice and are subservient in books written for between the 30s and the 50s, uh, but also that the stories reinforce notions of internalized white supremacy, paternalism, conformity, and assimilation. Paternalism, remember, was Horton helping out the who's. (laughs) So stupid. Um, Problematic illustrations and texts throughout Seuss's collection portray the colonization of various underrepresented communities and their voice as fun and lighthearted conquest. I mean, colonialism was still a thing when he was writing stuff like If I Ran the Zoo. It's a man of his time, right? And that's the thing that they complain about is that, you know, he's characterized as a man of his time. Um... See, because here in additional findings, they write, uh, Seuss, like any other author, was a product of his time. Fortunately, some authors grow and figure out that maybe some of the things that they wrote early on were harmful, and they try to make amends. Seuss did that. Seuss scholars support the reformed racist narrative, they write, of Seuss growing out of the racism he uh, of his early professional career when they suggest that, quote, Seuss understanding the racism and xenophobia had progressed, Seuss's understanding of racism and xenophobia had progressed considerably during the decade since his original, his early cartoons, his PM cartoons. Times changed and Seuss changed with them. And quote, how could so anti-racist and progressive a man as Dr. Seuss indulge in such knee-jerk racism? Um, so what the, these authors are saying is that his progress, his 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 growth is irrelevant because... Uh, they, Having lived, as they write, to the age of 87, there were a lot of possibilities for Dr. Seuss to acknowledge, take responsibility for, make amends for his racist actions and work. However, he never directly apologized for his anti-Japanese propaganda. The statements he made calling for the Japanese people to be killed, his use of the N-word, participation in blackface, that's... Um, that's that's the cat in the hat, by the way, or extensive career publishing racist and sexist works, dehumanizing BIPOC and women. On the contrary, he stood by his work and defended it. In other words, he wouldn't succumb to our mission to to uh, strip him of moral authority, the progressive mission to strip their opponents of moral authority. He wouldn't do that. Um, And so he's a bad guy. He never came out on our terms. He never he never spoke back on our terms, which is what, of course, they want um the last section of the paper just to skip down is current activism so these guys as critical race scholar activists we engage stakeholders including youth families and teachers from racially marginalized communities to identify and document existing forms of resistance to seuss's racist works and they describe this briefly and that's the last thing so these guys are activists with an axe to grind and the axe they're grinding is one against the cultural uh, legacy that Dr. Seuss and Dr. Seuss's work have had, and that's the thing they want to tear down, because it's all about tearing down culture. Alf haben der culture. If they can taint Dr. Seuss's body of work by pointing out that some of his works, like these six books that are now being canceled by uh, the Seuss Society or whatever, uh, the, if those works are tainted, Seuss is tainted. If Seuss is tainted, we can't use Seuss as a common point of reference for our culture anymore. Culture is abolished Alf Habender culture is achieved, and more room for a systemic change that changes everything, including who we are and who we think of ourselves as as people, and how we relate to one another, can be put into the activist hands. That's what's going on with this Dr. Seuss kerfuffle. That's what's happening with it. I apologize this was so long, but thank you for listening. That's the uh, that's the story uh, behind what's going on with Alf Habender Dr. Seuss.